welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. In this episode, we'll be in conversation with Chris Barnard, Policy Director at the American Conservation Coalition. The mission of the American Conservation Coalition, or ACC, is to change the narrative on environmental discussions through promoting a mix of free market, pro-business, and limited government environmentalism. While they focus their work at advocacy and issues awareness on a college-age demographic, the ACC is also active in the political realm, working with leaders and lawmakers at all levels of government. In his work with this organization, Chris speaks with particular passion and authenticity that encourages conservative-leaning folks to defy stereotypes and to embrace earth care as a central component of their political values. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers Podcast. Welcome, Chris. Maybe you could orient our listeners to who you are and what you do day-to-day for American Conservation Coalition. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So my name is Chris Barnard. I'm the policy director for the American Conservation Coalition, which is an organization that was founded in 2017 to give young conservatives a voice on environmental issues. And so in my role as policy director, I work on setting the policy direction of the organization and coming up with conservative solutions to climate change, to conservation, and all kinds of other things, and and really giving conservatives a seat at the table when it comes to these issues. Chris, why this work? How does this job resonate with your sense of, of your own vocation? Yeah, well, I've always been an outdoorsman. I've loved being outside. I've loved hiking and camping and playing in the woods with my friends when I was younger. And I've always had this instinctive love of nature. I'm a Christian myself. It's something that, that I see as part of my moral duty to to take care of this this earth that was created. I've also always considered myself a conservative. And for a long time, I felt those two were mutually exclusive. But then as I learned more about it, and as I kind of found out that conservatism actually has a very strong conservation ethic at the heart of it, I realized that my political worldview and my kind of passion for the environment were not only not mutually exclusive, they were actually mutually inclusive and one can't exist without the other. And so I've always, in the years that I've learned more about that and found found out more about it, I've just really been able to combine those two passions of politics and my love of the outdoors into what I do now. I want to follow up on that idea of love of the outdoors. You called yourself an outdoorsman. I'm wondering if you could maybe describe what's your relationship to nature? How would you characterize that? I just love being outside. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's refreshing, all those things. But there's also a kind of underlying philosophical element to it. When you look at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful mountain range, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter what degree you have, what job you have. What matters is that you are there and everyone that is in that particular place looking at that view has the same view. In that sense, I just consider nature to be this incredible equalizer and enjoying the beauty of nature is just something that 
I feel is should be accessible to as many people as possible because it is something that is a gift to us rather than a privilege. If you think back to some of the influences or experiences perhaps that shaped your your current sensibility to the created world, how would you describe some of the most formative experiences? So I actually was born in Belgium, a small European country, and it is also one of the most densely populated countries in Europe. And so it's one of those places where the population has been ever expanding, but the country is truly tiny. I think is kind of similar to Rhode Island or a little bit bigger or around that, but just very, very small by American standards, especially. And so village after village was kind of expanding, kind of morphing into one another to the point that a lot of the country is really just industrialized or homes have been built on it. And there's less and less nature every year than where I lived in a small village on the language border between the French and Dutch speaking parts of the country. We were lucky enough to have an intact forest and fields behind the village and within walking distance of my house. And I just have fond memories with my friends going in there and building forts and fishing and being in the river and pretending we were fighting orcs in the forest and things like that. And so I really always had this personal connection to understanding how valuable that relationship and access to nature truly is, how it recharges your batteries, how it allows you to, to escape the craziness and busyness of life. It's just something I've always valued because of that personal experience. When you think about your deepest aspirations for earth care specifically, I'm wondering, how do you want your life most to count? I think, obviously, the idea of being a Christian is that you want to live a life that is impactful and that you want to bless other people. And in many ways, I've found um, the environment to be one of those areas in which I've, I've developed such a passion to helping other people connect to that. And what's what I found really sad talking to a lot of young people is I'm surprised by how many young people have never even been to a national park in the U.S. or young people that don't have that connection to the outdoors. From my perspective, the only way you're really going to get to a point where you care for nature and have that deep passion for it and want to protect it is when you have that personal connection to it by being there, by experiencing it, by being a part of it. At least in the immediate future, I, I can't say for the 30, 40 years from now, but in the immediate future, that's something I'm really passionate about is connecting more young people, especially from underprivileged backgrounds, to be able to connect with nature and to, to be outside and to really experience that equality and equalizing that I was talking about when they're out there in nature. And so that's something that I, I'm really passionate about when it comes to earth care, because it's not just about leaving the environment as it is and just like not touching it. It's about how we interact with it. And something we talk a lot about at, at the American Conservation Coalition is we talk about conservation, not preservation, because humans live in this world. And, and in Genesis, it talks about the fact that we are tasked with taking care of it. And that doesn't mean just leaving it and not doing anything about it is tending to it. it's being a part of it. That really is kind of an idea that I, I love that we should be in nature, being a part of it, harmonizing with it, working with it, rather than just staying completely out of it. So tell me more about the work of ACC. As an organization, how would you describe the impact that you hope to have on the world around you? Our perspective is that the love of the environment and the love of the outdoors and of the planet more broadly is not party political. It was founded by our president, Benji Backer, in 2017, and he was frustrated, and many other young conservatives that care about this issue were frustrated by this idea that environmentalism was solely an issue for the left, rather than something that people just care about because it's something that's important to them personally. 
I think it's just been really important for us as an organization to allow young conservatives to feel like they're a part of this conversation, to express their personal love of the environment, the fact that they do care about an issue like climate change, and it's not just the left that cares about it. And so broadly, our our mission is to change the narrative on these issues, that conservatives can care, um, especially young conservatives. And we've seen incredible growth from that perspective. We just two weeks ago, we hosted the first ever conservative climate rally in Miami, Florida, where we had Mayor Francis Suarez and several members of Congress, and we did a rally outside of young conservatives about climate change. Just a few months ago, we hosted the first ever conservative climate summit in Utah, where we had 24 Republican members of Congress meeting to talk about these issues. The fact that they are doing this is because young conservatives have been pushing the ball forward on the issue of conservation and climate change and conservatism. And it's really incredible to see how we've already managed to do these things in just a few years since we were founded. And we're excited to see what we can do in the, in the years to come as well. So I hear you describing organizing gatherings. I'm wondering what else does the ACC do to people to increase awareness and to educate them? So we have a very strong grassroots presence and we, we have several target states where we work with our activists to give them resources to learn more about these issues, to campaign on particular issues that are relevant in those states and that matter to them, to have conversations with stakeholders, but also to, to do things that are just privately good for the environment, such as doing a cleanup at, on a local beach or planting trees in a local area or, or things like that that Beyond just activism, we want action as well. And so we empower our activists to do that. And one other thing is that we have a online academy where we do courses on various environmental topics. And so our, our members can go there and learn more about our kind of conservative market-based approach to these issues from hunting and, and sportsmen to nuclear energy to foreign policy. We, we tackle all of it there. And so that's a really great resource for young people to learn more about these issues. I'm very interested in that in particular, and I'm wondering if you were to advise younger folks who are listening to this podcast about how they might tap into some of the resources you're talking about, how do they have access or or do they have access? Yeah, so the Academy is free for anyone to use. You just have to sign up. It takes 30 seconds, and you can access it at marketacademy.eco. So there's various courses for people to learn about, and each course has a video to learn more about it from a kind of interactive format. There's also readings to delve more into it and quizzes. So it's really a fun platform for people to learn about these issues. And do you have to be young? You don't have to be young. A lot of the audience is young, but anyone can access it. Well, you mentioned that environment care, attention to climate change, for example, is not typically associated with a conservative agenda. You obviously are trying to counter that and to, to show that that actually doesn't have to be true. I'm wondering, though, what kind of resistance do you face, and then how do you overcome that resistance in a way that's persuasive, that doesn't alienate and, and put up walls? It's become a lot easier as we've been able to change the narrative, because first of all, people look at this, at the work we do and at the organization we are, and they see that we are genuinely passionate, and they see that we care about this issue without any entrenched interests, no financial backing or anything. We, we just care about this because we care about it. That's disarming because that's not something that they've seen much from the right on the issue of environment and climate change. So we have kind of managed to push Republicans in that direction and conservatives in that direction a lot more. 
Um, obviously, there's still some that that deny the problem and and that kind of push back against us on that. But the overwhelming majority of them are moving in this direction. In the most previous uh, election, we endorsed 37 candidates, 31 of whom won their election. And most of those had the environment at the center of their platform. You had freshman members of Congress like Peter Meyer and Maria Salazar and Nancy Mace and Young Kim that specifically talked about the need for a conservative response to climate change in their election platform. And they won. And now they're some of the most bipartisan members of Congress. And so that's really, really encouraging to see that growth happen. And then even just more from the, from the more left wing and liberal side of the, of the aisle, we've been featured as an organization in CNN. We've been in Reuters. We've been in Forbes. We've been in USA Today. We've been in, in all the major outlets with very positive stories about the work we do. And obviously there's some on the kind of far left environmental spectrum that don't like what we do because they think that any kind of market-based action is by definition evil. And and so they're not necessarily in favor of us, but most of the people aren't on the extremes. They're not on the far left or on the far right. They're somewhere in the middle. And that's where we're willing to have those conversations to push the ball forward on this issue. I want to pick up on that term, uh, market-based. And that's clearly one of the key tenets of the American Conservation Coalition's position. Can you tell me more about that? What does it mean to look to the market for solutions to environmental problems? I think I'll start with a quote from conservative climate scientist Richard Muller. And he said, if it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. And and the kind of understanding behind market-based environmentalism is the fact that if you give people a choice between providing for their families, putting a meal on their plates and a roof over their head and, and kind of just having a comfortable lifestyle – and you have to choose between that or taking care of the environment, they're always going to choose the former. They're not going to make enormous sacrifices to tackle an abstract problem like climate change. In fact, studies show that that the vast majority of Americans wouldn't even be willing to pay $10 an extra a month to tackle climate change. And so you have to be realistic about what people's incentives are, how they, how they ha- act as human beings, their behaviors. And so a market-based approach looks at the fact that if you can make it profitable and you can make it attractive for people to do things that are good for them as well as for the environment and for the planet, then you're going to create wholesale change. And you see increasingly the shift in markets towards kind of clean energy commitments. You see major oil companies like BP investing into renewables and clean energy, and they're shifting away from fossil fuels. Why? Because they see an economic opportunity there. So that's kind of really the major thing that we understand that incentives matter to people. And if you make them choose between providing for their family and the environment, they're going to choose their family. And that makes sense. But they don't have to choose one or the other. The idea of market-based environmentalism is that they can pursue actions that do both. One final thing I'll add is we perceive climate change fundamentally as a technological problem. We need to get to clean energy technologies to reduce emissions to be able to stop global warming. And The only way we're going to get to that is by creating innovations and technologies that will be able to achieve that. And we've seen that the greatest innovations in history come from entrepreneurs and scientists and business people. And and the human brain is just incredibly creative and able to come up with these solutions. And so a market-based approach looks at empowering those people and, and leveraging that creativity to come up with those innovations necessary to tackle a problem like climate change. And we see a perfect example of that with Bill Gates, who create, who's creating a next-generation nuclear reactor called NuScale, 
to be able to tackle climate change because he has the resources and the creativity to do that. And that's something that we applaud rather than try to shut down. When you are helping people to understand what a market-based approach to environment care looks like, what are some other examples that you point to? You, know, you just gave us kind of a big example with Bill Gates, uh, and that's almost a systemic example in that he probably, uh, the motive behind that experiment is probably to change energy production in general. But I'm wondering, on a smaller scale, what does a market-based approach look like? There's plenty of cool examples of local communities coming up with ways to reduce their emissions or to have community agreements for solar on school buildings that then gets spread to the rest of the community. Or you have examples of technologies emerging like smart meters in homes that allow people to use electricity at the best possible time of day to reduce their usage of the electricity. And so you have this just really kind of micro examples of steps in the right direction on this. At a more macro level, you see, for example, the fact that the costs of wind and solar has come down by over 90% in the last two decades. And that's because more and more companies and consumers and markets are embracing the need to transition towards these renewable, clean energy sources. And so their cost is coming down. Why? Because competition and innovation coming out of the market is driving that. We really see those as successes for market-based approaches to the environment. So you're speaking very much as an American. These are very American ideas, but you have done work in Britain and founded the British Conservation Alliance. Tell us how that came about. Yeah, so I, I actually was in the UK when I found out about ACC, and I found out about ACC on Twitter, as most young people do. And I immediately thought, wow, I love this. Again, going back to my former thought of just combining my political passion and my environmental passion, I thought, well, we should have something like this in the UK. And so I, I founded ACC's sister organization in the UK the, called the British Conservation Alliance that works on very similar things, but just in the UK context and had very similar growth to ACC is that nearly 50 university campuses across the UK and does really cool stuff there. So I definitely kind of come from that international background and that perspective of wanting this movement not to just be in America, not just in the UK, but hopefully we can expand across the world in the long run. So how does the work of BCA differ from the work of ACC? With ACC, it was slightly more of an uphill battle in the sense of you had a, a more entrenched strand of climate denialism in the conservative movement in the US, whereas in the UK and, and in Europe broadly, conservatives have been better on this issue in the sense of embracing it as a problem and acknowledging the problem and then wanting to do something about it. So we were pushing on a little bit more of an open door than ACC was doing in the US, but more and more we're seeing that conservatives in, in the US are catching up very quickly in terms of how we need to tackle this problem and be proactive voices on this issue rather than just obstructionist. You grew up in Europe, and I'm intrigued about this idea that people think differently about climate, think differently about the environment just by, by dint of the culture they grew up in. I'm wondering how your upbringing in a European context shaped your worldview. I grew up, my, my mother is American, but she, she was born in India. My father is Dutch, but he has an English background. And they met in Belgium, and that's where I was born and where, where they've lived most of their lives. And they now live in the UK. And so I've always kind of had this internationalist perspective. I always say I'm, I'm, I'm myself in a product of international relations. 
it's always been something that's not just contained to one country, whatever my worldview was on, on whatever issue. It wasn't just Belgium or just the US or just the UK. It was a kind of more holistic view influenced by multiple cultures and multiple nationalities and multiple languages as well. And climate change is in many ways a manifestation of that at the environmental level, because it is a collective action problem that transcends borders. And that's why I've been so interested in it also from an international relations perspective and what it means for national security, how what it means for countries working together on the international stage to combat this problem. My upbringing in Europe very much shaped my view of how people should work together cooperatively on the international stage. And isolationism is not necessarily the best path forward, but also still from that kind of conservative market-based understanding that just because we say that we're going to tackle it from an international perspective doesn't mean that magically we will. We also have to take into account incentives and that a country like China is not going to, out of the goodness of their heart, tackle climate change. Again, if it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. We have to make it attractive for China, India, Brazil, all these kind of up-and-coming polluting countries to actually move to clean energies and to do that because it's good for their economies and attractive and doesn't disproportionately burden them when we've been able to use polluting fossil fuel energy for decades and decades. That's kind of my uh, internationalist versus my realist perspective on this. We've been in conversation with Chris Barnard of the American Conservation Coalition. No doubt there are some listeners who find themselves in stark disagreement with Chris's ideas. I'm also pretty sure that others of you are excited because Chris is putting into words what you've always believed. And you know, the fact that this podcast can provoke both kinds of reactions is a good thing. You see, Earthkeeper stands on the principle that no one person, faction, culture, or organization has a corner on the truth. In order to think broadly and critically, we desperately need to listen to people who think differently. For that reason, the podcast is committed to making space for a diversity of voices from all over the world. After all, we've got just one planet, and we're all in this together. We all need each other to help us see past our blind spots and to understand what we don't yet know. Maintaining a stance of teachable curiosity and open-heartedness, then, is essential for all who would call themselves Earth Keepers. So, with open hearts and minds, then, let's return to our conversation with Chris Barnett. One of the priorities of this podcast is to feature perspectives from all over the world, because our stance is that you know, we're better together. We understand things better if we have multiple voices speaking into the answers, say, for climate problems and living more sustainably. If you think about your upbringing, again, in Europe, how might Americans learn from European cultures when it comes to living in more environmentally just and sustainable ways? Truth be told, I do think that there is a very powerful conservation ethic from American history. And if you look back at kind of the founding of the national parks, and if you look back at the leadership of Teddy Roosevelt and, and Republicans on those issues, this kind of idea of American outdoorsmen and sportsmen and all that, there is a kind of entrenched ethic in America of loving the outdoors and, and being with it. I think that was perhaps lost a little bit at some point. And there's an urgent need, especially for conservatives, to win that again and to not be shy about 
reclaiming their conservation heritage. I would say it's it's not so much that we have to learn a lot from Europeans about this, because I do think it is a feature of American history and a proud one. And, and it's more about returning to our American roots on that specifically. Now in Europe, there is obviously a lot of emphasis on... It's, it, countries tend to be small and, and resources tend to have to be shared. And so there is an emphasis on making sure that, that there is a sustainability and conservation of resources that is smart and takes into account the fact that there's a lot of people living in a not very large amount of land. And so there's some kind of different geographical and population and demographic factors behind that. But I think kind of in, in purely in terms of the philosophy behind it, I think Americans can look back proudly to their history and should push that ball forward again on those issues. That being said, there is also a need to understand that America from the late 1800s, early 1900s is quite different than it is today, especially on kind of racial and social justice matters. So there is an understanding that the American principle of equality for all under the law should really be pushed as much as possible when it comes to things like access to the outdoors. And we should make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to access the outdoors without any arbitrary barriers to whatever background people come from. So what happened? How did conservatives lose sight of what you're calling the conservation tradition? I actually wrote an article about this relatively recently for the American Conservative, um, and and the kind of the premise of the article and my my point here is that in the late 1960s and around 1970, which was the inaugural Earth Day, environmentalism became something that was seen as hip and was kind of taken over as a social justice activism issue for many progressives and liberals on the left. They really started talking about this issue in a way that became alien to many of the original conservationists, your sportsmen, your, your hunters and anglers, your ranchers, your farmers, the people that live in the land and depend on the land were no longer the primary voices of conservation. All of a sudden, they became liberal, educated elites in coastal cities from like New York or California. And environmentalism really became kind of just a, a hip thing to be an activist about rather than a lifestyle that is lived out day to day. That became problematic for several reasons. The first one is the fact that because of this transition from actual outdoorsmen to kind of educated elites at universities and whatnot and in cities, that it became a lot more abstract as a concept. And at this time, climate change became a little bit more of a, a widespread issue, uh, obviously not as much as it is now, but it started becoming part of the, the national consciousness. Uh, slowly but surely, we've really made things a lot way too abstract. And so the way that I frame that is, all of a sudden, when we think of climate change, we think of animals like the polar bear. But 99% of Americans have never seen a polar bear. We don't live near polar bears unless you're in Alaska. You don't see them on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if you're talking about, we need to stop climate change to save the polar bears, then you're not resonating with anyone. And you're not resonating with the people that experience direct environmental problems on a day-to-day -day basis, like water scarcity, hunting and migration patterns for animals, crops if you're a farmer. All those issues are direct tangible issues for what we would consider kind of the original conservationists, the people that live on the land. But when the climate movement and the environmental movement more broadly moved towards abstract principles like polar bears and carbon dioxide in the air, 
and it got removed from the day-to-day experience of many people, including especially conservatives, it became gradually an issue that was kind of in the consciousness of the academic elite and people that were educated rather than the people empirically experiencing experiencing these things on a day-to-day basis. So that's kind of my, my philosophical answer to your question that it became something that was really a lot more abstract and it became to an extent hijacked by people that weren't as directly involved in conservation in the land as the original conservationists in America. When I think about the conservative movement, I think that, of course, the evangelical church as a whole is a subset of of that, say, demographic or that group. Maybe you could comment on what has happened there as well. How has it become the the reality that that many evangelicals are resistant to, say, talk of climate change or environmental justice? Where did that come from? I think partly because they've seen who the champions are and they don't identify with them. And so if you look at someone like AOC as an evangelical, you're going to be very uncomfortable with that person being the flag bearer for climate change and environmentalism. Partnered with that is that kind of there's been a a strong political evangelical movement for a long time that has allied itself with the Republican right and kind of very skeptical of government in favor of liberty and free markets and things like that. I'm very sympathetic to a, a lot of those views, but a lot of the problem has been that they've synonymized being skeptical of government with being skeptical of climate science because they don't like the solutions that are proposed by the left. But just because the left proposes solutions to a problem doesn't mean the problem doesn't exist, even if the solutions are bad. And so unfortunately, I think that's a narrative that has taken hold amongst evangelicals. But the but the issue is that from a creation care perspective, climate change clearly scientifically presents a problem to the planet that we inhabit. And so there is a duty to take care of that. And there is therefore also a duty to propose better solutions than what these people like AOC propose. And so there's nothing at all that is intrinsically at odds between being an evangelical or being a Christian and wanting to do something about climate change. It's just about finding better solutions that fit in your worldview rather than just rejecting everything because you don't like who's proposing the solutions on the other side. And yet, when you talk about worldview, many people would defend their stance, say, against belief in climate change with scripture. How do you reconcile that? The fact that that many churches, many Christians will look to the Bible as the justification for perhaps just a different approach to nature, which is more more about consumption, more about mastery and domination. Yeah, well, I would say that scripture is full of examples of ways in which mankind has gone astray and done things that are against the divine will in the Bible. They did things that were entirely immoral and bad. And and a lot of the Old Testament chronicles that, the way that the Israelites re- rebelled against God. Obviously, when the Bible was written, it didn't really have, there wasn't really a conception of climate change. There wasn't a conception of climate science. And so I really struggled to see that there would be any scriptural justification for being skeptical of climate change. But even if there were, just looking at the way that mankind has rebelled even back in Old Testament days, then that is just a pattern that has been repeated throughout history. And so why would we not be willing to accept the fact that mankind is not taking care of the planet as it should and is rebelling against its moral duty placed upon it in Genesis to take care of the land? And 
the assumption of mankind being given that duty to take care of the land is that it can do it both well and bad because it, otherwise it wouldn't be given that duty. If the duty implies responsibility one way or the other, you can be a good steward or you can be a bad steward. And I think that that notion of mankind having been given dominion over the earth means that that could be abused in the same way that mankind was given dominion over many communities. And a lot of the, in Israel, there were people that were given dominion over the land and things like that. And they also rebelled. And so I don't think that the idea that mankind was given dominion at all goes against the idea that climate change is real. And in fact, shows that the ability of mankind to do very bad things is supported by history and supported by this issue of climate change as well. And, and that's why we should tackle it. And there is a moral duty that I would say is based on biblical principles to tackle it as well. Now, you know that a lot of people don't agree with you and would call themselves conservatives or evangelicals. When you're talking about belief systems, entrenched beliefs, and of course today, beliefs in America are more and more entrenched, how do you change that? I mean, American Conservation Coalition, it seems to me, is about the business in part of, of changing people's views educating, but even bringing them perhaps to a, a different sensibility to the environment. How do you come against the strength of entrenched worldviews like that? It's extremely difficult. And that's why sometimes you have to meet people where they're at. And, and there's one person that's doing a really good job of that on the climate science perspective. There's a, a climate scientist called Catherine Hayhoe. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of her. She's from Texas, which is obviously a very red state. And she's a very proud Christian, and she talks a lot about that. And she says the reason why she is a climate scientist that cares about these issues, why she works on these issues, is because she has this idea of creation care, and she has this notion of, of a moral duty to take care of the world that we inhabit. I think connecting with people on a more emotional level, I'm sure many, many people that would listen to this have looked at a natural landscape or have, have looked at something beautiful and felt some kind of experience of the divine if you were to tell them that that is potentially threatened by some of the things that we were doing with the climate to the environment, then that's a, an emotional way of directly connecting to an issue that matters to them rather than, again, abstractly talking about polar bears or CO2 or the atmosphere and things like that. It's connecting, connecting it to the issues that matter to them specifically. In the same way that no Christian would or should or hopefully wouldn't just throw trash on the ground because that is littering the earth littering creation that's a similar concept to uh, pollution that we put into the air but it's more useful talking about the tangible example of littering and beautiful landscapes and about the intangible abstract notion of co2 and so i think that's really a way to connect with people that would be more entrenched in their opposition to this kind of stuff in your various discussions with folks clearly you have a priority on conservation, but really in, in the realm of social problems, it's hard to separate one problem from another because they're so interconnected. One problem in, interacts with and affects the other. I'm thinking specifically about environmental justice and social justice. And I'm wondering if you could comment on how those two interconnect, at least in the work that American Conservation Coalition does. That's one of the issues, obviously, that's gaining a lot of traction nowadays. Unfortunately, we feel that a lot of the way it is talked about further entrenches people and further divides and polarizes people. And I think that is just a very unhelpful way of going about it. The way that we conceptualize environmental justice is 
people should have should be given the opportunities and the ability to have the best life possible when that come whether that comes to jobs or to access to the environment and that should be just a general idea of no matter what your background no matter what your race no matter what your political party you should be given those equal opportunities the way that we talk about that is for example when it comes to the the jobs transition and people talking about how fossil fuel workers will lose jobs and things like that is well real climate justice is coming up with ways for these people to have jobs that can go into the future and that are sustainable rather than just kicking them out of a job tomorrow and telling them to go code or something is providing opportunities for them to do that in the same way i think from a, a social justice and racial justice perspective it's really important to to give everyone a seat at the table and to try and address some issues that have happened in the past, especially kind of nearness to areas where there's been the most pollution and trying to come up with opportunities for that to be redressed and looking at it from a much more positive way than I feel it has been looked at in, in today's narrative. So it's a tricky topic and, and it's something that a lot of conservatives are uncomfortable talking about. So I'm not sure how satisfying my answer was, but that's just generally how we try to frame these issues. But you push against that discomfort. Your intention is to help them to talk about it. Yeah, help them to talk about it while also not necessarily buying into all of the narrative from the left. And that's the same with thing with climate change is, yes, we want to push conservatives to talk about it without necessarily saying that we agree with everything the left does. So we're kind of occupying that, that middle ground there. Listeners to this podcast tend to be looking for actionable ideas. What would you advise people in terms of how they might respond to our conversation? Well, I would, first of all, encourage anyone that is identifies as conservative-leaning but also cares about the environment to check out the American Conservation Coalition. You can check out our website. You can become a member. There's opportunities in your states to work on these issues at a local level and really be part of a movement that is recreating a conservative, optimistic, forward-looking collaborative approach to tackling environmental problems. So getting involved with ACC would really be the best place to start. Also check out the Market Environmentalism Academy, which again is at marketacademy.eco, because actually next month we'll be we'll be releasing a course about the faith-based approach to environmentalism with Catherine Hayhoe. And so that's something that we that we want to talk more about and give people more resources about why we think that there is that justification for Christians to talk about climate change and to want to do something about it. And there are plenty of other organizations out there that also do really good work on that specifically, such as Young Evangelicals for Climate Action or the Evangelical Environment Network. I definitely encourage people to check those out as well. We have listeners to this podcast from all over the world. So what would you say to the folks who aren't in North America? Well, I think a very conservative way of looking at any issue, but especially environmental issues, is that local action matters most and is very effective. And so if this is an issue that you care about, consider finding ways at the local level that you can make a difference. Because if everyone tries to make a difference at the local level, that all adds up to enormous difference. And that could be cleaning up your local beach or your local park. That could be composting in your own home. That could be organizing a hike with your friends to kind of learn more about the natural surroundings that you live in. There's maybe even tree planting programs nearby. I just think kind of raising that awareness about these issues and taking small steps in your own community are really effective ways of helping change the narrative on this issue. So clearly part of your job is to 
project idealism, project optimism. You want to give people hope. Do you ever struggle with that, though? Sometimes do you find that it's hard to have hope? I'm a very optimistic person, so I don't particularly struggle with that. I mean, obviously, when you're in politics, there there are times when a certain bill doesn't pass or people are just doing stupid, politicky stuff, and that can be demoralizing. But the way that we frame it is always, why are we doing this? Why, why does this matter to us? And And then you think of that time you were hiking that mountain, or you think of that lake you were in, or that time you were fly fishing, or whatever it might be to you personally, then it makes it all worth it again. Again, really just trying to connect it to your emotional connection to the environment and your personal experiences is is the best way to keep the hope going and to stay optimistic about this and not let the typical nonsense of politics drag you down. We've been talking to Chris Barnard of the American Conservation Coalition. If you want to know more about his work, and if you're interested in signing up for one of ACC's free online courses, go to acc.eco. That's acc.eco. Or check out this episode's show notes for the links that will take you there. Earthkeepers Podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, They amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. I am Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Megerly is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us next time on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>